Welcome to A Slice of Orange. I'm Jody Balma, and today I'm talking with two candidates for Fullerton School Boards. One, running for the Fullerton School District, the TK through 8th grade school district. Ruthie Hanshat is a first-time candidate running. In an open seat, Janie Myers has retired after a long public service to the board, and so we'll learn what it's like to throw your hat in the ring and put your name on a ballot. And also with me is Lauren Klatsker, who's running for re-election after serving four years years on the Fullerton Joint Union High School Board. Um, and, and we really talk about what it's like to run for office, what they want to do um, if elected, uh, and, and how those two boards can work better together as, as the school districts from Buena Park and La Habra and Fullerton feed into the Joint Union High School Board. So that collaboration is really important. And I was excited to get to talk to these two amazing women who are really interested in serving our students and our schools and doing what's best for public education. So take a listen. So welcome to A Slice of Warren. I'm Jody Balma, and today I'm talking with two candidates for Fullerton School Boards. First, I have Lauren Klatsker, who's currently serving on the Fullerton Joint Union High School District Board, which serves high schools in Buena Park, La Habra, and Fullerton. And Ruthie Hanshat, the other candidate for Fullerton School District, which serves our TK through eighth grade schools in Fullerton. So welcome to both of you. Thank you very much, Jody. So you're both on the ballot this November, which we're going to talk about. But first, I'd like to start with Lauren. What have you learned being on the board for the last four years? Um, I've I've learned a lot because not only have I served on the board for the past four years, but I had the pleasure of serving during COVID, which is just there's no playbook for that. So, you know, there was a lot of learn as you go. And through that, one of the things that I took away is that a governing board, in order to be effective, really has to have good communication and work as a team. And it's okay to have differences of opinion. It's okay to approach a problem from multiple perspectives, but ultimately to be the most effective governing board, which our kids and our community deserve, we have to be able to talk things out and be able to find common sense middle ground to be able to make unified decisions and give direction to the, the district staff. Because that's ultimately what the role of the governing board is to do, is to provide direction to the district who then goes out and implements that direction. During COVID, that was health and safety um, for teachers and staff. That was testing procedures, masking requirements, navigating forever changing science and statistics and information from the county. And it was really tough. So I didn't know, obviously, going in uh, that that was going yeah, to be. N- none of that was on your campaign signs four yeah. years ago. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. And the the year before that was totally different than the, the right. COVID times. So I learned different things pre-COVID than I did during COVID. Um, And I work for a school district. So as a school district employee, you have one perspective about schools and how they're run. Then when you become a board member, you have this totally different um, elevation from which you're looking at the school and the complexity of the district. And there's a learning curve to that. Even as someone who understands how a school district works, there's a huge learning curve. Absolutely, absolutely. And, And a learning curve as a candidate which, which, which is sort of what I want to, to ask you to do right now is to say, you, you know, what do you think voters need to consider 
when they're going to vote for a school board because, you know, so often these are low information elections. We vote for, for people based on kind of these things that don't particularly actually matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so as a voter, how do you decide who to vote for now that you've actually been elected? So one of the most important things that I think any voter can do and should do is to do their research on the candidates. It's never a good idea to go in blind and just go, okay, that looks good. I think I'm going to pick that. You really need to know who you're voting for. And unfortunately, because school board is so down ballot, it isn't something that people tend to put effort into looking at because we get so wrapped up in county and federal politics and who's running for Congress and state positions. We don't spend the time looking at that. But the school board has tremendous impact on our community. And so what I would like to do is remind voters about how important a school board is, because even if you don't have kids in schools right now, one of the first things that homebuyers look at is schools. How are the schools performing? What are the um, things that the schools are offering? What innovative and unique programs? And people buy houses or don't in communities based on how schools are performing. So it affects everyone's home prices. It affects this, the community because schools are a part of the community. And so Absolutely. no matter whether you have a kid in a school right now, school board matters. And so that's the first thing that I would want people to, to think about going into this election and specifically looking at school board. The other thing is, is like everything else in our country, everything is polarized. Everything is, um, our country is so incredibly divided right now. And unfortunately, even though this is a nonpartisan position, nothing is, nothing is debate free. Nothing is, um, there's just one perspective and school and it's affected school boards. As we know from local school boards that border our district, there are intense feelings and, um, passions about what should and should not be happening in school boards. So people voters need to kind of understand for themselves what they value in terms of public education and then find the candidate that most closely reflects and represents those values for public education. What do they want public education to provide in their community and vote for the candidate that best reflects that vision for them? Yeah, no, I think that's excellent. So Ruthie Hanscha, you are running for Fullerton School District. Tell me, tell me why you're running. What, what makes the jump from being interested in schools to actually entering the arena and putting your, your name on a ballot, which is a huge, huge step? It is a big step. And it's something, yeah, I'm new to this. Uh, but I've worked in child advocacy and for child, children's well-being for the last 20 years. It's really been my professional work and my calling. Uh, Since I was just out of college, I started working in anti-human trafficking. And in graduate school, when I was at Cal State Fullerton, I started working with World Vision International. So I spent nearly a decade with World Vision International being a child advocate and really bringing people together across cultures, languages, divides to focus on what's best for kids in some of the most vulnerable, difficult circumstances around the globe. So I'm also a mom and I have that background and I'm also an educator and I'd love to share more about those details. But as I started thinking about the skills and the experiences 
the, you know, really just the convictions that are needed to serve our community and our kids well. I realized I had those things. I just had applied them on a global level. But being a mom, I started paying attention, obviously, to the work of the school board. I volunteer in the schools often. My kids are in fourth and sixth grade. Uh, but through the years, I've seen the impact that the board has both on our students, our families, and our community, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized that I had something I could bring to this to the district. Uh, I could serve in that way. And it's a way of honestly loving our kids well and loving our community and serving them with the skills and the experiences that I have. I love what Lauren was sharing about um, really thinking about who's best going to serve our community, because I have found that my school, my kids go to Raymond Elementary. We love our community. These are my friends, my people, my Mm -hmm. co-madres, you know, that are helping to raise my children. And I realized just that community is so valuable. And I want to be a representative of that, but I also see the impact of the board and I want that feedback loop too. You know, and I think the conversation about how schools, you know, affect even our larger community, so much of our friendships, our relationships, our investment in our community comes through those schools. They are the places people gather and the ways that they connect and serve others. And I just, um, I think it's a Again, important that we pick people who are already doing that work of investing in our communities, connected to our parents and our families and our students that really see that as a way of improving the quality of life throughout Fullerton. Yeah, and and, and often I will talk to candidates who, 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 you know, really haven't done a lot of research before they get involved, whether they're recruited by a group or, or you know, they just decide on a whim. And, and I think that you know, learning a little bit more about the conversations you've had, that you've talked to, that, that you really have done a lot of research to find out how best to serve. And you've come to the conclusion that the way best to serve is, is to run for the board. And so can you talk a little about that, both you and Lauren, to talk about how you go about doing that for those folks who are listening and thinking about running in four or six or 27 years from now um, ab- about you know, what, what are the steps that you take before you put your name on a ballot? Well, you have to gather a lot of courage, right? But, you know, in my, like I said, in my experience of working for World Vision International, a lot of what I did was uh, conversations with youth around the globe, working with communities and vulnerable places and connecting with our staff. I, I led a community of over a thousand people in a hundred countries who are all focused on children's well-being. And I would discern and listen and bring those voices together and then bring those policies to world leaders. So I was, you know, the UN uh, representative on violence against children for our organization. I was the UN representative for girls education initiatives. So I was, my role was to listen discern and bring those voices. And my favorite part of my job was creating space for young people to come and advocate and speak about the issues that affected them. So that ability to listen, to discern, to take in information and represent your community well, but also lead them, you know, to take take them forward to where we can best focus on what's best for kids, I think is really critical for anyone seeking to serve in this way. Um, I'm also an educator. So I teach at Vanguard University on human trafficking. And over the last 10 years, my students and I have gone out to communities, to high schools, to youth groups, educated over 10,000 people about human trafficking. So again, for me, that investment in our community, seeing the critical importance of young people understanding these risks and how to keep themselves safe and their peers safe was a big part of why I wanted to run too. I love getting young people excited about taking a stand for issues that matter to them, having a say in 
you know, their community, and especially speaking out for justice when they see something that's not right and have the the voice to change it and the power to change it. So that again, that um, the ability to you know mobilize young people in that way is a big part of why I'm doing this. Absolutely. The last piece, you know, I said I was a parent. I'm a PTA leader at Raymond. Um, you know, I've been involved in the school, volunteering in the classrooms, and seeing the impact that again the board decisions have. I think. Uh, we can oftentimes see a disconnect. And so I think, again, listening to parents, listening to their concerns, whether it's about our children's mental health, whether it's about safety on campus, bringing those issues to the board is a big part of why I'm doing this work and continuing to listen to our community, to our parents, to connect with other mamas and ask, what do we what do we need and how do we bring that forward to our leaders? Yeah, absolutely. And Lauren, what did you find? What kind of research did you find to be really useful? And 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 what were you kind of surprised about when when you were uh, finally seated? Um, well, when I ran in in 2018, I had no experience um, other it being civically engaged, other than being a voter. Um, I had proudly voted in every single election that I had ever been able to vote in since I was 18. I had served on my juries. I had done all that kind of stuff, but that was sort of the extent of my civic engagement. And like Ruthie, I'm a mom. And um, so I, I arrived at the decision to, to run from two different perspectives. First being that I, I, my passion is education. I do it for my day job. Um, I taught special education. I was a high school counselor. I'm now the coordinator of special ed for the district that I work for. And I have a passion for making sure that all of our students have their needs met because that's what public school is about. It's about serving every student who walks up to our doors and say and enrolls in our schools, regardless of what their needs are, where they come from, um, whether they're food insecure or housing insecure, whether they're ready to learn, whether they have at grade level skills or far below grade level skills, whether they need nursing assistance during the day, we take them all and we wrap our arms around them and we serve them. And that for me, that was my passion. And so I felt like there was a bigger way for me to serve. In addition to doing the work that I do during the day, I wanted to be a part of my community and I wanted to give back. So as an educator concerned about my kids' education and seeing the district and the decisions that they were making and wanting to have a voice and being an active participant in that, because selfishly, I want my kids to have the best education they can have. I also felt it was a way for me to be able to give back in a larger sense as well. I had no idea what running was going to be like. And it is um, that for me was the biggest eye-opening experience in my last election. And I, I feel like I, sorry, Ruthie, I have an advantage this time in terms of going into this and knowing what's coming. It's right. intense and it takes over your life and your kitchen is messy and it will be until November. And um and it becomes all consuming, but I really feel like that civic civic engagement component is so important. And um, my kids come with me; they uh, canvas with me, they drop off signs with me, they come to my um, community events, and that's important. That's important for them to see. And right. yes, sometimes I tell my seventeen year old that he will be civically engaged whether he wants to or not. But in the end, that experience is really powerful. And if you ask him he will tell you that he learned a lot about the process and what it means to be an active citizen. And isn't that yeah. one of the things that we're teaching our kids through school is active civic engagement. So mm -hmm. running and being a candidate was a huge eye-opening experience. 
And a lot of people don't realize how much money it costs to run an election. Right. And it's really uncomfortable to fundraise. For me, I found it incredibly uncomfortable, right? In our country, we don't talk about money. We don't ask people how much they make. We don't, we don't ask people for money. That's right. really uncomfortable. And it's something that you're forced to do and you're forced to own. And it really running, it's just one of the ways that running pushes you out of your comfort zone. Sure. So I, I, I learned a lot about campaign management. I have so much respect for people who run for um, positions that are higher up on the ballot because, you know, like we talked about before, school board is so down ballot and it's right. intense even at this level. And the amount of money that you have to fundraise is incredible to run an active campaign, buying signs and mailers and door hangers and, and all of that is incredibly expensive. So it's, yeah, uh, it's and, an eye-opening experience. And we taught in my classes, when we talk about women and politics, there's also that the gender socialization of putting our names on things, you know, yeah. to have your name on huge signs and your picture, your picture and, and just to put yourself out there is, is a whole nother layer. Of, Absolutely. Of, of the uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. So, so, so there are lots of myths out there. There's lots of misinformation about what's happening in our schools. Um, you know, I certainly see it from, from older folks who are hearing rumors on Facebook. Um, and, and I keep saying like, none of that is happening in our schools. Um As a college professor, you know, I often get accused of indoctrination and I I think, oh, wow, to have that superpower. Like, I just I just want them to read the book. (laughs) I can't get them to read the book. (laughs) How, Tucker Carlson, do you think I could possibly indoctrinate them? I can't get them to read the book. But um, certainly our K through 12 schools and uh, have, have just gotten hit with these myths about what's being taught, what's being pushed. Um, and and so how does that affect your campaign? The kind of kind of that polarization that we're talking about that that dials down to this local Fullerton level. Um, what what are you seeing as you talk to voters? What are their concerns? And maybe we could do a little MythBusters of um, the, these things aren't happening, and then we could spread the truth. So in at the high school level, one of the things that is the hottest topic is ethnic studies, and what is it? What isn't it? And how is it being taught? And who's developing the curriculum? And um, I mean, all of those things are are really hot topics at this at the high school level across the state. Because as you know, Jody, um ethnic studies is a requirement for graduation. It has not been implemented yet in terms of being that required course that you have to take for graduation. We have a couple of years before that hits, but all school districts across the state are working now to develop what that curriculum is. And of course, the narrative in some circles is that ethnic studies equals CRT. So there's this this myth, this misinformation push that comes out that ethnic studies equals CRT, and it does not. Right. It does not. What we and, know. And CRT, critical race theory, is, which is just this big boogeyman, is, is, is a legal theory that's taught in law school. And, and, you know, it's not even something that we teach at the college level, um, not something that I had even heard of before it became man- manufactured into a scare tactic. Um, and, and so when we're equating that, I think you're right that what honest history centered on 
on people that have not been centered before right. is what we're talking about. And, and, that and as a here. woman who all too often was relegated to the sidebar of a history book, um, I would love to center women in, in the story. And I would love to center lots of different stories that have yet to be told. So, And that's ultimately the, the purpose of ethnic studies is because we know that kids, when they see themselves reflected in the curriculum, have better overall achievement and not just in the course that they're studying, whether it's ethnic writers in an English class or whether it's learning different aspects of the same story in history, the same events in history, but being able to see that from multiple perspectives and understand impacts on different groups. We know that when kids are validated in that way because their family's story or they themselves are reflected in that, they do better overall. And the national myth of this boogeyman, as you put it, which is is the perfect term for it of CRT is just not what we're doing, but something that is being pushed as what's happening instead of the reality, which is teachers in Fullerton Joint are the ones who are working with um, community partners to develop the ethnic studies curriculum. They're working with Fullerton College professors um, to gather information about communities in the community, it, communities in the community, sorry, about groups in the community that make up right. our population here in Fullerton so that we can develop courses that are meaningful to the kids in our schools, because that's what ethnic studies is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I actually love, I watched what, one of the benefits of the pandemic is so many of these school board meetings are remote. And so it makes it a lot easier for somebody like me to, to zoom in and, and, and catch things. But one of the things I loved about the presentation for ethnic studies at, at Fullerton Joint Union High School is the idea that students would have their own project to study their own culture, their own history, that it's not just going to be pre-chosen for them. Um, but that, it, you know, if they're Scotch-Irish, they can study that. If, if they're Italian, if they're German from the you know, Anaheim uh, descendants, that they get to study that. And I think in a really meaningful way, more than, you know, we start with those heritage projects in elementary school, but to come back to that. Mm -hmm. And so Ruthie, what are the, what are the myths that we're seeing as you're running? Well, I mean, I hear the same myths and a lot of people asking me about those, my position on these issues too. And I think what unfortunately it does is it distracts from the work of the board, right? So we have these conversations that are really more about politics and culture wars at taking over school boards around the country that really are distracting from the important work that the board is supposed to be doing of leading and directing our school districts and educating our children. Um, And, you know, We owe it to our children to have open, honest conversations about the impact of race, to talk about diversity in our societies, to for children, like you said, to see themselves in the literature and the stories and the history. We need to talk about the good and the bad. You know, we need to be honest and also uphold the ways that we can see injustice and do something about it. You know, I've had people say, well, you know, I don't want my white children to feel bad or to feel like their privilege is, you know, it's their fault for slavery. And it's like, if we're doing that, we're doing it wrong. You know, no child should feel bad because of the skin, the color of their skin or the history of their family or where they came from. But instead, we should all look at the ways that we, you know, have opportunities to engage with history, to ask hard questions, to look at our society now and say, how do we make it better? You know, and that's that's how I'm raising my two white children is to recognize the power they have and to say, 
you know, recognize the power that others have and to be allies and partners in this process of making America a better society, you know? And so I, one of the reasons I got in the race, I remember having a conversation with my daughter who at 10 years old, we had heard a story about books being banned and, you know, a parent was banning a book because the primary character was a, a black boy and she was worried that her white children would feel bad about that. And my daughter spoke up from the back of the minivan and said, I read that book, mom, it's really good. And she said, kids shouldn't be banned from learning about race. They have to learn about racism so we can do better. And I just, I know that our kids can do better. I've seen our teachers do excellent work. Um, I've been involved as a parent, as a volunteer, literally in the classroom. And during Zoom, I was in the classroom at home. And I've seen the engaging really excellent ways that they've led children through conversations talking about, you know, Black history and when do we stand up and how do we speak out for justice and what does that look like today? And as a third grader, what can you do? And those are beautiful conversations that we want to encourage in all of our kids to, you know, to have a better society. And so I think when we ban these conversations, we're really not only invalidating our kids' real lived experiences, but we're put, we're silencing our teachers from doing important work. And we don't, we instead want to back them up with appropriate right. training and curriculum to say, these are important conversations. We've got you. We want you to do it well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's so important to understand that. And, and to really understand, you know, that, that, that most teachers, every teacher my kids have ever had are, are so welcoming to say, like, come on in. We want parent involvement. The the school district is saying, you know, this curriculum is available to look at. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, don't don't rant and rave on social media. Come into the school district and review the curriculum. Be part of a committee that decides. I've been a part of parent committees that give feedback and give input on those processes, on curriculum selection, as well as, you know, programming and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. We want parent voice and we encourage it. And I think the district, yeah, I mean, you know, following through and seeing how, how does that implemented is a question I want to continue to pursue, but I think that's the goal. It's just doing it well. Absolutely. I think you you brought up, you brought up something that I I think a lot of people don't realize is the power that parents actually have. Curriculum Mm -hmm. is a new curriculum before it's officially adopted is always on display at the district office Mm -hmm. and parents should know that. And if they have questions, they should go take a look at it. And any parent at any time can have a voice at a board meeting. In Fullerton Joint, we call them blue cards because they're printed on blue stock card. Um, No other reason than that. But any parent can come and can have a voice during public comments to tell us something good that's happening, to tell us what they're concerned about, to ask questions. And, you know, because of the Brown Act, we can't necessarily always respond in the moment, but we will always make sure that someone from the district follows up to address the parent questions or something like that. So whatever it is, I think parents and the community, it's not just parents. You don't have to be a parent to look at that at at the curriculum um, prior to adoption or anything like that. Come in and look at it if you have questions, because that's the best way to find out whether something is true or not, is to take a look at it yourself and to be a part of that decision making by coming in and voicing your concerns or asking your questions. So I just, I wanted to kind of touch on that because it's- No, I think it's an excellent point. I I, I do. I think it's important for everyone to understand that going to the source and getting that information verified, you know, before you're posting rumors and, you know, Mm -hmm. we used to call them urban myths and now they're viral lies. 
Um, but I, I think it's important to understand that, that you have access to the Mm -hmm. truth. Um, the same goes to, I mean, another myth hot topic is, you know, sex ed, sexual education for our kids and what is entailed in that. And again, as a parent, I've had the opportunity. We were invited. I chose to go to see all the curriculum. You know, they showed us the videos, the same stuff that they showed us in the nineties when I was growing up, they're pretty much doing the same thing. Um, but we're, you're able to view the curriculum and it's, I was, pleasantly surprised that all the things I had heard, the negative comments and thoughts that parents had prepped me for really just were not there. And, you know, as someone who my, I've worked over the last eight years doing anti, you know, prevention of of human trafficking and sexual exploitation of children. I love educating parents on how to talk to kids to prevent sexual abuse. It is so critical that parents have those first conversations. And I recommend, I mean, you can watch my YouTube video on my website, ruthiehanchett.com. I recommend parents start as soon as kids are verbal, talking about how their bodies, you know, are, we have private parts. We don't look, touch, show pictures of these private parts and no one else does. So we establish boundaries, rules, you know, healthy relationships to our bodies and to others. And that's our job as parents. But the school also has to be a safety net for those that don't have it. So I see our opportunities with sexual education as an opportunity for us to identify red flags, to be there for kids who either don't have a safe, healthy home, or their parents aren't willing to have those conversations. They still need to be equipped with scientifically accurate information, comprehensive education, but also conversations about life lessons of consent, of healthy boundaries and healthy relationships. And that's what the Healthy Youth Act of 2016 actually provides as an opportunity. You know, I've been privileged to be able to have conversations about human trafficking because it's part of our law. Kids are supposed to learn these things so we can prevent abuse, so we can have appropriate boundaries for kids to keep them safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as, as we've been hearing about other states and other schools that have banned books and, and, you know, even Mm -hmm. possibly fired a teacher because she shared a QR code for the Brooklyn library. Um, You know, I, I, I just want to talk to the parents and say, like, do you not understand that your kids are going to find much worse on the internet when they go searching? Like yes. yeah. Again. that is so important yes. and, and not in an inflammatory way, not in a salacious way, but just factual information that, that kids can have access to these concepts because what is on the internet is not a place you want kids to go looking. No. And that's actually one of the reasons, again, that I got in this race and I want to serve on the board is because I want to really change the way Fullerton School District approaches child protection online. Because I think we have some cursory lessons that are required where it's a lot of it's about saying safe passwords, bowling that can happen online, but our kids are living their lives in a digital world. And what we know is statistically, most children are seeing pornography often by accident by age eight, nine, 10, 11. And so we as parents, again, need to be ahead of that. We need to equip our kids with as many safeguards, you know, protection of the access so that they don't have easy access. But we also need to prepare them. If they see something, this is what you do. This is why it's inappropriate for children because we need to protect them from what oftentimes becomes addictive, harmful, violent, degrading images that they're going to see, which shapes their ideas of their own selves, their bodies, other people's bodies, and their expectations of relationships. So I really believe that part of 
this digital citizen life is equipping kids to understand appropriate, inappropriate content, why it's harmful to them and how they should respond and talking with trusted adults about when they need help. Yeah. And and, and having the school district provide that information for parents, I think is crucial. Yeah. We need to equip parents and teachers and kids. And at the secondary level, digital literacy and digital safety looks and sounds and feels different because when they're at the high school level, we need them to be able to determine um, what not only whether content is appropriate and safe and, and things like that, which hopefully they're learning the foundation of in elementary school, but we need them to be able to critically analyze and decision make about whether information is false, whether it's accurate, right. because we know that a lot of false information is sold as factual online. Correct. So when kids are doing research, which of course they're going to need for higher ed, when they are looking at sources and finding out the information about even mundane, benign things, they need to be able to have the skills to sort through what they're seeing right. online and find out what is a factual, reliable source and what isn't. And that's going to impact them for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. So that digital that digital safety starts with yeah. one type of digital safety as children. And then as they get older, it morphs into this higher level digital safety and decision-making that becomes really important for them as well. And and that leads to something else I want to talk about because Fullerton does have these two separate boards and you're running for different boards, but, but how can Fullerton school district and the Fullerton joint union high school district work better together? You know, sometimes I see one board making a decision that's in direct opposition to the direction the other board is going. And I'm like, well, what happens when they go to ninth grade? You know? <laughs> right. And it's so a- I, I just wonder if, if that, that kind of collaboration and conversations will be better served. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a challenge for sure. And I think it's a challenge at all levels. There's the board level, there's the superintendent level, and then there's the, the assistant soups and the cabinet right. level because they have, um, for lack of a better term, job-alike opposites at the elementary district. So I think the boards need to communicate with each other, um, They need to be able to talk to each other and align their visions because, again, remember, the boards is is up at the top giving direction in terms of vision and purpose. Then it's the superintendent and the assistant superintendents who figure out the how of the what that the board has said. So when those assistant superintendents are talking to each other, it provides opportunities for alignment. And whether that's making sure at a superficial level that the counselors from the high schools are going to the junior highs and having conversations right. with kids about electives and making sure they know, like, for example, we had an incident where my my middle son missed a test because there's a placement test for honors in high school. And even if you're in honors in junior high, you have to take an honors placement test in high school. But somehow there hadn't been communication or we had missed it, whatever it was, and he missed the date. And so we had to scramble and I found out at the last minute. So even something silly like that kind of communication, it's not silly, but it's not like super deep. It's not seamless. Right. And that's that there's a place for that type of communication. But also when we are talking together and our ed division people are working with the Fullerton school district ed division people, we have opportunities for backward mapping and planning and curriculum. And that allows the elementary schools to understand what we're doing and 
help prepare our students for success when they get to us at the high school level, but it also helps us to understand what they're getting before and why we might be struggling Mm -hmm. um, at the high school level because something's missing from before. And then we can align those things together and, and work together with the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- and I think sense? those I think those conversations are so important to have without the blaming, right? Yes, yes. I think that blame yes. of oh they're not doing it right, they, mm-hmm. and and I think those conversations and relationships have to be built across those school districts so that you do enter in in a collaborative and you know. And that's well, been very helpful. <laughs> Lauren's yeah. been very helpful for me, showing me the ropes of some of this and. And Joanne Folly as well, just hoping that um, we can build some of those relationships. And I know even, for instance, we were talking about how dual language programs have started in Fullerton School District. My daughter's in the oldest class, you know, the sixth graders right now, but they'll be coming to high school soon. And I know that even other schools in our area are sending their elementary students and junior hires now to our high school. So preparing and uh, being ready to challenge those kids with, you know, growing in their language skills is going to be something we want to work on in the next couple of years. Right. Absolutely. absolutely. And that, that requires, that requires joint effort from both groups because um, a lot of people don't know that the credentialing required at the high school level is a dual credential. You mm-hmm. can't just be credentialed in Spanish, for example, if it's a, mm-hmm. a Spanish dual immersion. You have to be credentialed in both the Spanish component of it or whatever language it is, in addition to your studies. content area. So right. it's very hard to uh, entice people to go get duly credentialed. It's a lot of work and a lot of right. effort. And um, so it takes effort to not only get those people and have that in place at the high school level in preparation for the kids that are coming up. So there's a lot of time, lead time that has to happen to make that work and, and be feasible. But also because it's new, we need to work with the elementary school district and make sure that we at the high school have a really good understanding of exactly what skill level the kids are going to be coming in with so that we're not trying to build the boat as it's sailing, um, that we have a program that's functional and helps to continue to build their skills. So it all, I think for me, comes back to that communication component and really working together to make it, it's more seamless for the kids and the families. Yeah, absolutely. So, so my last question before I, I let you add anything you want um, it is really for, for those voters who don't have students in, in the schools, what are some of the challenges that are facing our students, our teachers, our schools that, that people might not be aware of? Ruthie, well, why don't you go? One of them is, is certainly the challenge of mental health right now. Um, not only our students, but even our staff and our teachers. When I listen to our, our teachers, a lot of what they've shared with me is the challenges of kids who've been through really rough stuff. And it's coming out in trauma responses that are normal kid behaviors for when they've been through these hard things. But it's, you know, in kindergarten, it might be rolling around on the ground, not listening and paying attention. High school, junior highs, it looks more like fights in the hallway, right? But these kids that some of them really weren't in school and weren't well supervised for a year of school. And then obviously we've had last year and this year, but they're still working out a lot of that. People have lost family members. They've been through hard times and it shows up in, in, trauma responses. And so I think meeting the mental health needs of our kids is really critical. We, I'm proud of Fullerton School District. I think they've made a lot of significant efforts, both introducing kind of basic uh, 
curricula and training in the classroom for teachers to walk kids through understanding big emotions, like dealing with calming yourself down, kind of these basic life skills for social emotional learning that help kids be ready to learn in the classroom on a daily basis. We've also absolutely stepped up our support for mental health professionals to meet some of those bigger needs and challenges. But even that, you know, a lot of it's depending on COVID money. And in the next few years, when that runs out, we're going to have to think about how do we prioritize our children's mental health? Because around the country, our pediatricians and our psychiatrists have declared a mental health emergency for children, Mm -hmm. and it's not going away anytime soon. So we really need to think about how do we long-term make sure we have the funding to respond to our kids. And it's, you know, it's a, it's an intervention that has lifelong benefits. If we can teach kids these skills now, they will use them the rest of their lives. So it's, you know, supporting our kids to make sure they're performing well in school. It's teaching them these life skills that they need and it's supporting families because how hard is that as a parent when you don't know how to help your kid, when you see that they're going through a rough time. So our schools really are that safe place that parents can go to, to get that help, whether they get it at school or refer out to services that we have partnerships for the community. That's really critical. And um, that's something I definitely want to prioritize if, if I get elected to serve on the board. And something that even as a parent, I've been really intentionally working with our, actually our sub superintendents and our community, our PTA, trying to increase awareness of the resources that are available. So if parents and families know that there is help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Lauren, what do you think people might not understand about the challenges? Um, I think Ruthie hit the nail on the head with the mental health component. That's a that's a concern at the high school level as well. But if you don't have kids in schools right now, one of the things that you're probably not hearing is the conversation about declining enrollment. We're really lucky in Fullerton Joint. We have amazing programs and we haven't been hit as hard as some of our surrounding districts. But the reality is, is that living in Orange County is extremely expensive and it is outpricing many of our young families. And so mm-hmm. they're being forced to have long commutes and live outside of Orange County, even if they work here. And Although that might not sound like that big of a deal, it's super impactful to schools. When our the number of students um, go down, that means our funding goes down. And we still have schools to maintain with facilities, staffing, um, upkeep, all of those sorts of things. And Fullerton is this amazing place with historic schools. I mean, Fullerton Union High School right. is this beautiful, beautiful old campus with beautiful old buildings and they need to be seismically upgraded so that they're safe for our students to perform in. For example, in the Fullerton Auditorium, if you drive by, which Jody, I know you see every day because I it's do. right there, um, that's, it, was, it wasn't seismically safe. Right. And that's a huge financial impact on the district. And it's not just the Fullerton Auditorium. It's not just the Fullerton Gym. It's, you know, a building built in the 1960s at Sunny Hills High School or something like that. So declining enrollment, it means that our funding sources decline as well. And that means it's harder and harder for our schools to be upgraded and kept up. And when we can't keep up with those things, it means we're not able to provide our kids with the same level of -of state-of-the-art learning that prepares them for college and prepares them for work after. And I think that a lot of people who don't have kids in this, in the school system right now, aren't aware that that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it will have a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we still are funding based on attendance mm-hmm. um, as, as if the cost of, of running the school goes down when Johnny is sick. Um, 
right? So that yeah. that decline in enrollment is really going to hit. But I definitely agree that the mental health um, stress of our of our entire society mm-hmm. um, and and what a lot of our students have have lost and and we're seeing that um, as we're coming back more fully. So uh, final thoughts uh, about what you want voters to know since this is an election season. Um, Lauren, what do you want to leave voters with? I want to leave voters with the idea that we need to have board members running our schools and our districts that use common sense, that are not polarized, that are willing to listen and come to consensus and work together. That is the only way that our schools and our school districts will be successful. And I have experience not only as an educator, but as a current board member that navigated through the uncharted waters of the pandemic and successfully reopened our schools in Fullerton Joint without mass numbers of staff getting sick, without mass numbers of students getting sick, and helping the community, providing lunches and um, food, because sometimes that was our only uh, kids access to food was from school during the pandemic. So I have the, the ability and the experience that is necessary to help keep leading Fullerton Joint Union High School District through the next four years, continuing our financial solvency and working together with my fellow board members in students' best interest. And my website, if I can put that out there, is Lauren for School Board, laurenforschoolboard.com, where you can learn more about me and who I am as a mom and as a professional, as well as learn about uh, the accomplishments that I've been able to help facilitate as a board member over the past four years. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for running. You know, I always... Anybody who's brave enough to put their name on a ballot, I I, I give a lot of credit to. So I I appreciate. So Ruthie, what do you want to leave voters with? Well, I want to leave voters with a positive impression of what is going on in Fullerton schools. Because I'm a mom. If I elected, I would be the only mom with kids in the district. And so I'm there every day. I'm partnering with our other parents, our families, our kids, our teachers, our staff. And I'm seeing some of the great work that's going on there. Yes, we can grow and yes, we can improve, but I think we can be proud of our schools. And I'm excited to continue to invest in them and lead them in that way. Um, A lot of what we're hearing about the fears, the national conversations about schools around the country just are not the reality. And I encourage people, if they're concerned to come spend time at our schools, volunteer. We always need PTA members and volunteers. Spend some time with our kids and our staff and see what's really going on. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Um, But, you know, our engaging with our kids, ensuring the best possible education is how we build our democracy. It is so critical for our community and is essential for our kids. So I want to continue to keep the focus of our board on the work of educating our kids well and not be distracted by some of these um, fear-based assumptions about what's actually happening. Um, As I said, you know, I I have 20 years of experience of working as a child advocate. I've worked with communities around the globe, diverse uh, communities of families and leaders, global leaders, to focus in on what's best for kids. And I want to bring that perspective to our board. I'm also an educator myself. So I see the impact that teachers have on people's lives. I've invested in young people throughout Orange County, as well as as a volunteer in Orange County and Fullerton too. And I'm a PTA leader and I'm 
every day at Raymond Elementary as a mom. Um, my kids are a big part of why I'm doing this, and they are the best feedback mechanism I have because when board decisions are made, I often ask them, "Did you see that? Did it? Ha- Do you see that in the classroom?" Right. And they give me the honest input about what's really happening and what yeah. they like and what they don't. You know, and that is important that we are listening to our kids. I have a lot of experience as a child participation advocate working with youth around the globe and especially with my students now and engaging them on issues that affect their lives. And they deserve a chance to have a voice in the decisions we make as well. So I want to be that voice to empower our kids to have space, our parents to represent them on the board and respect our teachers and the contribution they make as our partners. I love it. I think that's a great way to end. Um, So we will uh, be sharing uh, some candidate forums, places where you can meet uh, all the candidates that are on the ballot with our listeners. Um, but I just want to thank both of you for taking some time and sharing your perspectives and, and hopes for our Fullerton schools. Thanks. I want to also encourage people, just as Lauren said, to check out our websites, do the research. So mine's RuthieHanchett.com. I'm on Instagram at RuthieHanchett for the number four school board or Facebook RuthieHanchett for school board 2022. And I'll put all those in the show notes. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much, Jody. I really appreciate you inviting us. Absolutely. Thanks. So as always, thanks for listening. I couldn't do this podcast without you. A special shout out to my favorite listener, my mom, Peggy Jenkin, who listens to this podcast, even though she lives in Turlock, California, and doesn't get to vote for 90, 95% of the people I talk to. Um, my executive producer, Ann Watka, who spent years talking me into this. Uh, a huge thanks to the producing team who makes this possible, Jackson Henry and Fisa Valiola. Um, If you haven't listened to Observing Fullerton, you know what to do next. Subscribe and listen to all their past episodes. As part of the Fullerton Observer, uh, the podcast team, Aruj Naveed, Arian Meza, Bianca Bravo, and our own Jackson Henry, keep you informed about the uh, the Fullerton community with their podcast. So give them a listen. They've got a great show. Thanks. Talk to you soon.